You may be seated. Probably not hard to miss these days that the thing we once knew as social media is imploding. You may have heard that a famous billionaire bought one of our social media companies, Twitter, which was based in San Francisco near where I used to live. And well, not a lot of people work at Twitter anymore. And so that platform is questionable for its future. Facebook this last week laid off 17,000 people, 17,000 from Facebook because of declining revenues and uh, their capacity to monetize on personal information of individuals. Social media has given rise to a number of dubious things, one of which is what's called the influencer. A social media influencer is a person who has capacity to shape culture in some way, whether it be a particular kind of shoes you might wear or other fashion statement, foods you might eat, how to apply makeup, who knows what. And one wonders how those who have been identified as social media influencers become influencers. In other words, what qualifies them to do that kind of work? I don't know. I don't know. Now, that's just me speaking as the jaded generation Xer that I am and that I just don't quite get it. But besides all that, what we live in today is a, is a strange era in which one's capacity to be qualified, to be an expert on anything, is simply because you have an opinion on something, I guess. And so the way in which our culture forms influence, merit, capacity, is oddly formed in the days in which we currently live. So we might say, well, we'll let history be the judge of this social media age, but I would uh, suggest to you, again, back to my Generation X cynicism, that history may not be the best judge. It's kind of let us down on things like the Confederacy. It's let us down on Elvis. It's let us down on colonialism. It's let us down on a whole front of topics. So perhaps we need to think about this differently. And I'd suggest that there's a theological or spiritual way we might take a look at merit. That merit really in every way is a bit of an irony. There's a lot of merit going on in this episode in Luke chapter 23. You see, merit somehow believes that everybody gets what they deserve. And our gospel is the exact opposite message people getting what they don't deserve. Merit is an irony for a whole host of reasons. It says in the story in Luke 23 that people stood by while they watched Jesus being crucified. And I know this text is about Jesus's crucifixion, but I just want you to, to hold that for a moment, this notion of Jesus crucified, because I want to talk about all the people that were there. The crowd stood by, according to Luke 23, and they watched all of this unfold, but they said absolutely nothing. For whatever reason, they felt as though they had no merit to speak up or to offer an opinion. But yet the religious leaders who were all gathered there, the elders, if you were, will, the text says that they sneered at Jesus as he hung on the cross. And they said, he 
could save others, but he can't save himself. And then right after that, we hear about the soldiers who represent kind of the military political leadership of the day. They look at Jesus and say, well, here's the king of the Jews. Can't he save himself? And then Jesus is crucified between two criminals, according to Luke's story. And one of the criminals on one side of Jesus derides him, saying that he should be able to come down off the cross and save not only himself, but also the criminal who wants to be saved and no longer be crucified. There's a lot of merit going on in the story. Whether it's the soldiers, whether it's the religious leaders, whether it's the people that were standing there, or one of the criminals crucified next to Jesus, there's this notion of, of people feeling superior in the moment. Now, can imagine it just for a moment to be at that moment, like you see in this picture. And you're going to see a few of these pictures that depict the crucifixion in, in visuals that we're not used to seeing. People standing around, all thinking that they've got it better than Jesus. You know, we do the same thing in our day. We do the same thing within our culture of influence. We say things like, people get what they have coming. Somehow, we affirm a belief in cosmic karma when we say things like that. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, we say. Somehow believes that everyone has boots. And everyone has boots with straps. Whether we're deserving, entitled, or vindicated, oftentimes what we do in our lives is simply try to self-justify. All those gathered around watching Jesus die, self-justifying. Well, at least I'm not him. Our churches are defined by some of the same problems. Good churches are defined by how big they are and how much stuff they have going on. Is that a good church? Uh, I don't know. What is a good church? What is a great church? Perhaps I'm a little too cynical. Yet we live in what's called a post-secular age. It's a new phrase over the last 10 years coined by a man named Jorgen Habermas. Many of us have understood the word secular for a long time as a dividing line between the secular and the sacred. The secular is the stuff that is not of God. The sacred is the stuff of God. And those are terms that were commonly used during secularism in which modernity pointed to the way in which rational human thought would be supreme. And so people of faith were regarded as somewhat of a novelty, largely benign, somewhat deluded in their kind of medieval sort of thinking about the supernatural realm of God. But in the post-secular world, things have begun to shift. According to Habermas, he, he posits that people of faith are now no longer benign and inert, but that people of faith are generally depicted as a threat to the social order. That religious fanaticism and religious fundamentalism have a way in which they express some of the greatest danger that the globe has known. This is a serious topic for us, don't you think? especially in the global order in which we heard even today about 
the firsthand account of Russia invading the Ukraine, there's religious overtones all over that conflict that are part of the propaganda that have tried to somehow justify this war. We do it all the time in the United States. The rise of Christian nationalism is civil religion turned up to 11 on the knob in which somehow we believe as Christians we're the most afflicted, persecuted community in the United States of America. Police. Police. Brothers and sisters, our meritorious way of living and the way in which we seek to self-justify ourselves over and against other people, we compete in the culture wars. Why? Because we somehow have been told that we need to come out on top that we need to win, that we need to beat people. These are values that are not embodied in the gospel of Jesus. This Jesus hanging on a cross, suffering out of love for the whole world. Our competitive, meritorious nature gets the best of us. And none of us are above it. I'm not above it. I'm, I'm guilty as charged on what John Wesley called the works of super irrigation. You're probably sitting here going, what? Super what? Super irrigation. The super irrigation are the ways in which one attempts to justify themselves by doing lots of stuff. I'm an expert at it. I know how to churn out work and get stuff done so people go, wow, that guy gets a lot done. It's my way of earning and curating favor with people. It's one of my chief vices. I've spent most of my life trying to unlearn how to do that. Because you can imagine if you live a life like that, where you're always trying to justify yourself by some form of merit, you drag that into your relationship with God, and then all of a sudden you're trying to make God happy with you. Friends, is there a gospel in the house? That God doesn't need me to do anything for God to love me and to love you just as you are. Let's consider some heavy questions. Here they are. In what ways have we tried to lead a merit-based way of living? How has entitlement and privilege dominated our perception of self and others? And maybe what antidote is there to the quest for power and supremacy? I'd suggest we need to turn our attention to the criminal on the other side of Jesus who might give us some insight. It's only in Luke's gospel that we have a story of these two criminals who are crucified. And in uh, Matthew's version of the story, both of them are antagonistic toward Jesus. In Luke's gospel, only one is and the other's not. And so the other criminal on the other side of Jesus, he then makes a series of statements about grace, theologically speaking, and everything he says as he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Let's take a close look at what he said. The first thing he says to the criminal on the other side of Jesus who is accusing Jesus is this rhetorical question. Do you not even fear God? you notice how there's no merit or entitlement in that at all. That criminal totally understands who God is and who he is and who everybody else who's gathered around is and that there's no confusion in that moment. Do you not even fear God? 
that everyone posturing themselves, deriding Jesus, mocking Jesus, telling Jesus what he should and shouldn't do as the man hangs on a cross. Here's this criminal who says, do you not even fear God? God alone is entitled and possesses merit. God alone is entitled and possesses merit. The second thing that criminal said, you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We hear this throughout Scripture, don't we? Paul in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is universal. We need no convincing. As a matter of fact, we don't talk about it too much when you come to church on Sunday because I'm a practitioner in believing that you've had six days and 23 hours of being beat up by the sinful world. So when we come into this place, we proclaim a gospel of hope that brings healing to the sin that we ourselves are dealing with and the sin that the whole world is trying to deal with. We're under the same sentence of condemnation. The reality here is that our quest for merit leads to death, suffering, pain. The desire to ideologically always come out on top, to always be right, and to prove everyone else wrong are not values of the gospel. They're values of something else. The criminal goes on, he says, we indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our crimes. There's a way in which this criminal is simply saying, how are things working out for us in this age of anger and polarity and merit and influence? How's that going? It's going badly. We're indeed suffering justly. And then the man hanging next to Jesus says, this man has done no wrong. You see, out of everybody who's gathered around, the criminal says, we've earned what put us on the cross, but this man next to us did not earn what put him on the cross. He is not guilty of anything. But yet, because he represented a threat to the merit of religious leaders, he represented threat to the Romans, he represented threat to people of, who wanted to control systems of power, He's hanging up on a cross. This man's done nothing wrong. So finally, Jesus speaks at the end of the text. As he spoke at the very beginning, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That doesn't sound like a meritorious statement the way we know it, does it? And look at how the text ends. Jesus looks at the man and he says this to him. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Not tomorrow. Today. Jesus' final act on the cross before he breathes his last is to give eternal life to the man next to him. Do you see the problem here, friends? You, you see whether they're the, the people gathered or the religious leaders that were sneering him or the Roman soldiers who were deriding him or the criminal next to Jesus that was telling him to save himself and to save him, everyone is questioning Jesus' capacity in the story. He saved others. Can he save himself? If he's the king of the Jews, why doesn't he come down from the cross? Everyone questions Jesus' capacity, 
But merit and entitlement keep them from understanding a key truth of the story. Do you see it? It is not a question of Jesus' capacity to come off the cross. It is a question of his choice to come off the cross. He chooses not to. Do you see? It never crosses anyone's mind that Jesus chooses to die on that cross because he knows what his death will achieve. Forgiveness, mercy, grace. It's through his sacrificial act that power is achieved. This is the scandal of our gospel. And in the 21st century in the United States of America and around the globe, it should offend people of power. It should stink up the room. Because Jesus is saying in his death, as he dies, by his own choice, that only God has merit, and that I love all of you enough to die for you. Not die because of us, for us. Sober, isn't it? You see, in this age in which we tell people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, that they should just get their act together, maybe you should just work a little bit harder, blah, 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 blah. We're espousing a value not inherent in the gospel. There's not one of us that deserve or merit or have a right to what God has done for us. It is an infinite act of God's mercy and grace toward us. I'm convinced that many of us have lost touch with this truth. That we are followers of the idea of Jesus, but not the person, Jesus. And so today, we want to do something slightly different as we go into our time of communion. There may be some of you here today that want to renew your commitment to that Jesus. You may want to renew your commitment to following a Jesus that loves, sacrifices, gives of himself, is merciful, is graceful. You want to follow that Jesus. That's the Jesus you're after. And if you want to make that rededication of your life to Jesus Christ this morning to affirm the forgiveness of your sin, to affirm God's grace in your life, and to affirm abundant and eternal life, we want you to come for communion and know that the pastors are here to pray with you this morning if you want one of us to pray with you. There will be some of you here this morning that have never made that commitment in your life before. You've never come to a moment where you've said, Jesus, I want to receive your forgiveness this day. I want to receive the grace that's offered in the cross of the Lord. And if that's you today, we want you to come forward as well and please pray with one of the pastors. While we have communion, you'll be coming forward and Pastor Camille and I, I might invite Pastor Bonnie to join us if she's willing to be up here in front and just pray with you this morning if you have a need. Friends, this is a time of commitment for us. This is a time of commitment. Our truth that we affirm is that there is only one influencer. His name is Jesus. And his work is not done. Mm -hmm.